Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 451 with Dr. Art Markman. Art is bringing it when it comes to cognitive science research insights to make you smarter at work right up my alley, and I think yours too. So you'll learn one, the secret to making a great first impression, two, the pros and cons of high energy, and three, the role of dissatisfaction in motivating yourself. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep451. Now here's Art's story. Art Markman is a professor of psychology and marketing at the University of Texas at Austin. He got his SCB from Brown University and his PhD from the University of Illinois. Hey, before coming to the University of Texas, Art taught at Northwestern University and Columbia. Art's research explores thinking, and he is also the executive editor of the Journal of Cognitive Science and the former executive officer of the Cognitive Science Society. Art has always been interested in bringing insights from cognitive science to a broader audience. And to that end, he writes blogs for many sites, including Psychology Today and Fast Company. He consults for companies interested in using cognitive science in their businesses, and he's on the scientific advisory boards for the Dr. Phil Show and the Dr. Oz Show. So thanks to Art for hanging out with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here is Art. Art, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Oh, it's great to be talking to you today. Thanks so much. Well, I think we're going to have a ton of fun. And I think first things first, I got to say uh, I-L-L. I-N-I. Lovely. It's great to have a, a fellow alum in the house. Yeah. And I also understand that you play sax for a blues band. What's the story here? Yeah. So, uh, you know, in my mid-30s, um, I decided to take up the saxophone. Oh, cool. And, you know, I played the piano as a kid and and realized I'd never played another instrument because when I was in fifth grade and they demonstrated band instruments, I asked my mom if I could play the French horn. And she said, no, we have a piano. You play the piano. Okay. <laughs> and I realized in my mid-30s, it was no longer her fault. <laughs> so I took up the you sax. Choose, and, yeah. Yeah. And uh, started playing in bands after I'd been practicing for about 10 years. And uh, it's great fun. That's cool. Gets me out of the house in a in a healthy way. And what are the names of the bands? I love band names. Uh, so right now I've actually transitioned to playing with a ska band. Oh, wow. And we're called Phineas Gage. Oh, yeah. Who was a 19th century railroad worker who had a spike blown through his head and lived. That's right. Yeah. I don't know why I know that. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's just it's one of those random facts yeah. that once you hear it once, it tends to stick with you. But didn't he have some sort of a condition as a result of it that was studied by a lot of folks? Yeah. So one of the things, uh, so uh, Antonio Damasio makes a lot out of this because Phineas Gage seemed to have trouble actually connecting the emotional experience of his life with the cognitive experience. And and so he was, it was easy to take advantage of him because that little spidey sense that goes off in most of us uh, when we're dealing with somebody who's a little shady didn't, didn't seem to affect him. Hmm. Intriguing. Yeah. Well, cognitive science is your cup of tea. And uh, you indeed like to talk about applying it to, in your latest book, Career Advancement. Could you maybe orient us a little bit to, you know, what exactly does the term cognitive science mean and what are some kind of key concepts that make a world of difference in career advancement? Yeah, so uh, cognitive science goes beyond mere psychology to, to say that if we're going to understand as, as something as complex as a mind, 
we need to understand the science of behavior. That's where psychology comes in, but also how brains work. So neuroscience, it's useful to have some computation to, 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 to think through how we might build an intelligent machine. And so robotics and computer science come in, uh, as well as culture. So you get some anthropology and, and linguistics to, to understand how language functions. And so when you take that much broader based perspective, you, you get all of these different insights into the way the mind works. And I'm sort of a native born cognitive scientist. My undergraduate major was actually cognitive science. And, and one of the things that that does is, is it allows you to get more perspective on why you think the way you do. I like to point out that almost everybody I know has a mind and almost nobody knows how that mind works. Mm-hmm. And yet, if you learn about the way your mind works, it can help you to do the things that you do more effectively. Uh, for example, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the new book is has to do with the way that uh, the way that you present yourself in a resume that that you might think, well, I should jam every conceivable positive thing into my resume that I can find under the assumption that people are adding together the total amount of goodness about you. But it, it turns out that when people actually uh, look at a resume, they are averaging. Uh, and so if you put on something that's good but not great, you could actually lower your average a little bit. And so, you know, if you've got that honorable honorable mention for a, a prize, you know, you might want to think twice about whether you want to include that because it might actually bring down people's overall evaluation of you. Oh, certainly. And I think in particular when you're trying to customize a resume to tell a story, that's really going to resonate, you know, for the recipient. Yeah. I suppose like this guy is all over the place versus, oh, this guy is a real pro at exactly the things I want him or her to be a pro at. Exactly right. So you you really want to understand the minds, not only your own mind, but the minds of the people who are going to be evaluating you so that you can be as effective as possible at, at impressing them. Well, that's handy. Yes. Well, so we're going to talk about a lot of stuff, but I'd love to kick it off by hearing What's perhaps the most fascinating and surprising discovery you've made when it comes to deploying some of these cognitive science insights for career advancement? So I, I would say that one of the, the more surprising elements of this is, is, has to do, for me, with, with understanding values and value systems. That, that you know, I, One of the things that you find, particularly when you start to talk to people who've been in the workplace for a little while, is they get dissatisfied with their careers because they, they realize that the things that they thought they wanted when they were 20 uh, are not actually the things that they wanted. Mm. And it becomes useful to begin to think about, well, what kinds of things do I value? Am I the sort of person who, who actually cares about prestige? Or do I really care about helping others and being part of my community? And am I on a track to be able to do that? Because you may not be able to reach all of your goals and, and, and achieve all of the things that meet your values in your first job, but at some point you got to feel like you're making progress towards it. And, and I think that, that a lot of people don't take that into account until too late. And then you experience that midlife crisis where you think I've, mm-hmm. I've just wasted all of my time when in fact you can begin to do that much earlier in your career. Well, that's fascinating. Can you share what are some key values that folks think they want and realize that they don't kind of often? Well, I have a number of stories in the book because I I was happy enough to be able to enlist the help of people on social media. So I, I, as I was writing the book and had all these concepts, I would just ask people questions and they would, they would uh, tell me their stories. And I'll tell you two that were kind of fun. One, one is a a guy named Brian who um, he finished college and really took a job that was going to pay well and give him some prestige. And he actually realized that was not what he wanted at all. And he, he left his job, went to, went to the, to do the Peace Corps for a while and, and came back and, and really focused on jobs that were going to help others. Uh, that was, that was actually something that he was, he, he, that he ended up being very passionate about. But, you know, there are other kinds of values. There's another story in the book about a guy who, uh, who went into a, a in, into a, a session to talk about State Department jobs and walked out of a uh, out of a test that they took and and other folks were laughing at this one question about who would enjoy being in a war zone, and he he realized actually he he wanted that 
he, he responded positively to that question and realized that adventure was a very important value for him. And he ended up fashioning a, a, a career that, that put him in a lot of dangerous places, but it was utterly exhilarating to him. So, you know, we, we, we have different, you know, some of us want enjoyment and adventure and some people want stability and, and, and they want to know where their next paycheck is coming from. And some people want to be helpful and some people really want to look out for themselves. And, and all of those things across the population are values that people hold. We get some of those from the culture around us, but, but particularly in the United States, we're given a lot of opportunity to really decide for ourselves how we want to live our lives. That's cool. And so you lay out Shalom Schwartz crafted a set of values with 10 universal values there from power and achievement and hedonism and stimulation, self-direction, universalism, benevolence, conformity, tradition, security. That was fast. Yeah. (laughs) No need to dig into every one of them, but it's intriguing. You say that there's a couple of ways you can go about clarifying your own values and what's most potent for you. And what are those? Well, you know, the very first thing you want to do is actually to be aware of them, to be aware that there are these values and to begin to ask to what degree do these resonate with you? And there are scales that you can that you can take. I'm actually going to be putting one up online for people who read the book to uh, if they want to actually test themselves against these values. But one of the things that I think is important is periodically throughout your your career, not not every week by any means, but but maybe on that on that yearly basis, to, to ask yourself, well, how am I doing? Do I do I feel like I am doing the kinds of things in my work life often enough that I am making progress towards those kinds of goals? Or do I feel like my values are not being reflected at all in the work that I'm doing? Mm-hmm. That's really resonating for me as I'm thinking about my first job that resembled a professional job, it was an internship at Eaton Corporation, which a lot of people have not heard of, but it is a Fortune 500 company. It's a diversified industrial manufacturer. And I remember as I wrapped up that internship, I thought, you know what? This was pretty cool in terms of, you know, I, I learned some things. My brain got tickled and challenged a little bit. You know, there were some great people I enjoyed sort of seeing regularly. And I got home at a decent hour and the option was there to return. But I remember walking away thinking, you know, I think that this company could provide me, you know, a satisfying, stable kind of uh, career, but I really wanted a thrilling one. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I went with uh, strategy consulting after graduation. And then after some years of that, I thought, you know what? I want more autonomy. Mm-hmm. And I want maybe in between 40 hours and uh, 65 hours. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Uh, somewhere in that zone uh, would probably be better, you know, at that phase. And so, it definitely connects that both of those opportunities were great. And it's just about seeing what's the best fit for you in life and what's going on. And it can change over time as well. I, later in the book, I I talk a little bit about another guy who, um, you know, early on, uh, was, was focused on, on developing that career and, and having that, that very stable career, but also one that, that had a, a certain amount of achievement in it. Then uh, in the middle of his career, his, his wife got sick and he, he needed to really back off and put his value on, on his family and on taking care of his wife and his kids. And then later in his career, uh, after he went back to work, after she, she got healthy again and uh, had some success and, and, and engaged those values again and then decided he wanted to really help others and, and actually left the practice of law and ended up running a nonprofit for a while. That's cool. And so, you know, you get these shifts over time, sometimes as a result of life circumstances and sometimes just as a result of changes in perspective as you see more things in your life. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, we've already kind of gotten into some of the meat of it, but maybe to zoom out for a moment, what would you say is kind of the main thesis or big idea behind this book you got here, Bring Your Brain to Work? Yeah. So the idea is that if you think about your career, which is bigger than any individual job, it's that collection of things that you truly contribute as a result of the work that you do and has this cycle of of looking for a job uh, and getting it, then succeeding at it while you've got it, and then considering whether to move on or move up, that, that, that that cycle can be really informed, no matter where you are in your career, can be informed by understanding more about your mind and the minds of other people 
and that this is stuff that we don't really ever learn in class. And most people, when they hit mid-career, realize that very little of what allowed them to succeed at work was something that they learned in a class in school. Mm-hmm. And so part of what I'm trying to do in the book is to bring more of the research around cognitive science to help people to learn some of those things that are critical for career success that, that they probably didn't get in a class. Oh, excellent. Well, thank you. We appreciate that effort <laughs> in the world. And so, well, let's dig into some of the stuff then. We talked a bit about zeroing in on what you value and figuring out how a job might align to that. But you've also got some pro tips in terms of acquiring the job using cognitive science insights, like in the midst of an interview. How do you figure out kind of where the interviewer's head's at and what they might love? So one of the things that fascinates me about interviews is a lot of people walk into that interview focused almost exclusively on, I have to impress the interviewer. I need this job and I want them to think great thoughts about me at the end. And, and of course, that's not irrelevant. You, you want to go into the interview well prepared and, and so that you're able to really talk authoritatively about yourself and about the way that you would fit with the company, which means you need to know something about the company. But what a lot of people don't do effectively is to realize how much they can learn about the organization that they're interviewing with as a result of that interview process. So, you know, if you get totally stumped on a question, you might think to yourself, well, that's it. I've screwed this up completely. But actually, it gives you this opportunity to engage in a conversation with the interviewer and to get a real sense of, are, is this a company that actually wants to support me, that wants me to learn, that wants me to help uh, to, to think the way that they think? And, and to the extent that the interviewer actually digs in and works with you to, to walk your way through an interview question, uh, they may be telling you something about their willingness to, to, to help to mentor you and to train you and, and, to, and for you to understand that this is a company that doesn't necessarily think you need to be fully formed on day one in order to succeed. On the other hand, if the company just you know, brushes you off for not knowing the answer to a question, <laughs> then, well, they're communicating something completely different, right? And so you should be paying attention to that from the beginning to really understand what am I learning about this organization through the through the interview process, frankly, through the negotiation process as mm-hmm. well, where they're communicating a lot about what they value in the way that they treat you when you are uh, trying to negotiate salary and benefits and, and, and things like that. Oh, certainly. Well, that's a great point there is to, you know, first of all, to broaden my question a bit, it's not just about impress, impress, impress. It's a two-way street. You're, you're picking up intelligence on their side. Like, is this a good fit? Do you like the way they work it? No diggity. Yeah. But then back to the wowing side of things, when you are putting half of the attention on that side of the equation, what are some things that do some of the wowing or help you sense what they're really feeling? Yeah. So, you know, one of the fascinating things about the interview is more than anything else, companies are trying to figure out whether they want to work with you. Yeah. And so, you know, because they've already brought you in, which means they've looked at your materials. They feel like you you have potential qualifications for the job. And so now they're trying to envision how you fit in. And so part of what you want to do is to really engage. So, you know, yes, you need to be prepared, but at some point you need to really have a conversation, give, give those interviewers a chance to have a sense of what it would be like to have you as a colleague. Um, but to, but to do it by putting that best foot forward, uh, you, you know, every once in a while you think to yourself, well, I, do I have to, do I really have to put on an act for them? You know, do I have to put, do I have to really have to be my best self? And the answer is yes. You, you don't, you don't want to be, uh, you don't want necessarily need to show every single quirk in the interview, you know, those, those things that, (laughs) right, exactly. Those things that people will find charming eventually, um, (laughs) maybe get them to learn to love you first. I've got plenty of quirks, Art, which is why I'm laughing over here. Oh, I, you know, so do I, right? And, and, you know, it's fine. I think quirks are, are part of what makes us interesting in the long run. But in the short term, you you want to you want to put that that best foot forward. And, and, and I think really, you know, believe in what's called the halo effect. So the better the first impression that someone gets of you, the more charitably that they interpret every other thing that you do, because every behavior that you exhibit in the world is ambiguous. 
right? Are you brash uh, and, and arrogant or are you confident and assertive, right? Well, you know, those, are, those could manifest themselves with almost identical behaviors. But if I like you already, I'm going to think of you as confident. Mm -hmm. And if I don't like you from the beginning, I'm going to think that you were kind of an arrogant jerk. Yeah. And so you really want to come out initially with, you know, creating the best possible impressions socially that you can in order to, to get people to feel like you'd be somebody that they really want to work with. Now, in terms of some of the details for how that's done, I imagine, you know, there's some basic fundamentals like, you know, smile, make eye contact, engage, listen, shower. Uh, shower's you know, good. Yeah. Put on some clothes that, uh, you know, aren't stained and wrinkled. But are there any sort of like cognitive science secrets that are some huge do's or don'ts when it comes to making a great impression? Yeah. You know, one of them is, is it's not just smile. It's, it's bring the amount of energy and enthusiasm that you want that person to feel later. So one of the things we know about conversation is that people tune to each other. We even, even down to the level of the pitch of your voice. Really? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> ah, really? Yes, Zing. they do. No, and, and if people are laughing, right, or smiling, you know, that then one, if one person's doing it, the other person's doing it. They will even mimic facial expressions and, and uh, you know, if one person crosses their arms, eventually the other one is going to do it. And so if you're trying to generate energy and enthusiasm, because that will ultimately be interpreted by the interviewer as enjoyment, you know, I mean, the fact is that the, the higher your degree of energy, the more invested you are motivationally in something. And so if you're, if you come in really flat, then, then you're going to get a flat evaluation later because the interviewer is going to, is going to mimic your flatness and, and you're going to end up just, you know, it, it's going to be a, a mediocre uh, evaluation at the end. But if you come in with energy and enthusiasm, you will create energy. And that energy actually now feeds back into the evaluation that you get. So you can, you, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. And so you need to bring the energy that you want the interview to, interviewer to have, particularly because many times you're working with somebody who may be a recruiter or a hiring manager who might be doing 15 interviews. Oh, yeah. And so if you don't bring it, well, you know, they don't need it. Mm -hmm. They're doing a ton of these all day. So you've got to make sure that you create the atmosphere that you want. And so, Art, I think that I am one of those people who don't know how, if I'm in the majority or the minority here, that could overdo it, you know, <laughs> with regard to the energy. Like, whoa, that's a little too much. Like, are you, a, I don't know, a clown or a motivational speaker? <laughs> like, how do we think about it? when is it too much? <laughs> well, you know, honestly, I don't think that the energy level can be too much. But I do think that the that that you have to be careful when you're energetic to still stay on topic. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that a high level of energy can do is to allow you to overcome your filter. Okay. Oh, certainly. <laughs> right. Because one of the things that we know motivationally is that we have in, in our motivational system what you can think of as a go system that drives you to do things, and then a stop system that gets you to inhibit. I, uh, things that your go system says you should do that, that on sober reflection might not be such a good idea. And the more that you overload that go system, which is something you can do when you give yourself a tremendous amount of energy, the more you can override the brakes, which can, can potentially cause you to say something that you probably shouldn't have said in an interview. And so you, you don't, the, the danger with with too much energy is not so much the impact that it's likely to have on the interviewer so much as the likelihood that it's going to cause you to do or say something that probably was not a great idea. Mm, yeah, that's a good thought there, certainly. So, I mean, I imagine so long as you're keeping like your volume and gestures within a like normal, reasonable human yeah. dimension, and you're not just disclosing crazy, right? <laughs> crazy things. I, I heard a, a story of a person who interviewed someone who they said, "Hey, how are you doing?" They said, "Not well." And then he just <laughs> went on to share uh, <laughs> quite the story of how his girlfriend threw him out of their apartment, and <laughs> his clothes were thrown out of the window, and he was trying to figure out a place to, I don't know, get a suit cleaned or something yeah. in the middle of the night. 
And it's like, okay, this is uh, uncomfortable now. Right. <laughs> right. I think the correct answer there would have been fine. Yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> okay, that's handy. So great energy, but uh, not so much that you are doing unwise things and short-circuiting the, the stop system there. So, well, now let's say, all right, you got the job and uh, you want to apply some of these cognitive science insights to, let's say, communicate, collaborate, interact with your colleagues and clients better. Yeah. What are some of the, your favorite do's and don'ts there? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things to watch out for in the in the modern environment is that we do so much discussion with our colleagues that is mediated by text, whether it's email or instant messages or Slack or, or any one of these ways of, of communicating just through through the words alone being sent through the ether. And the problem is human communication is really optimized because of our evolutionary history, for a small number of people interacting face-to-face in real time. And the further away that we get from that ideal, the harder it is for us to communicate effectively with our colleagues. And that means that if, if you're going to do most of your communication with your colleagues via text, you need to go out of your way to create a certain amount of FaceTime with them in order to establish a relationship so that they can read the tone of what you say more effectively. Because if, if, I, need you, if I need your help with something and I poke my head into your office or over your cubicle wall or wherever it is and I say, listen, man, you know, would it be all right if you, you – know, could you possibly make some copies for me right now? I'm running late and I'd really appreciate it. You, know, you can make a request of someone that imposes on their time and still demonstrates to them through the words that you, that you use and your tone of voice and the look on your face that you understand what a big imposition it is and that you deeply appreciate what they're doing. When you say the same thing over text, it comes across as cold and, and as, as demanding. And so unless they can hear your voice in their head, then they're, you're, you're, gonna, you're actually going to end up sabotaging some number of your relationships just because of the, the, the overuse of this kind of text. So we have to find ways to create that kind of FaceTime. Uh, and, and as it turns out, that is often more efficient because things that can take you 10 minutes going back and forth by email or instant message can actually often be resolved in about four seconds of real conversation. Well, and I love what you had to say there with regard to give them lots of experiences of the FaceTime and then they can imagine their own mind's eye and ear, you know, what yeah. your facial expressions are looking like and what your voice is sounding like. And this reminds me when I was consulting, we had this client and uh, we kept getting these emails back. We asked about, hey, you want some data like this? And then the client sent back some things. And we're like, oh, actually, you know, that's, hey, thank you. But, you know, we'd really kind of want it like this. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, then, and then, you know, she sent something back and it had like some red letters in it. We're like, oh man, she's angry. Right. And they thought, you know what, why we just pay her a visit? You know, I was like, hey, hey, what's going on? Really appreciate you taking the time to help us, you know, think through and share these things. You know, we're trying to accomplish this and it'd be really awesome if it's possible to do that. She's like, oh, yes, absolutely. Certainly. I can get that to you this afternoon. Just like the sweetest thing. Right. And uh, I'm like, oh, thank you. And then it, it just sort of reinterpreted every email that we were like sweating over. It's like, oh, I guess maybe red is just a clear means of delineating and separating that text from the original email text and, you know, right. black or blue, as opposed to I'm furious at you. Right. And it was quite the lesson. Yeah. Eyes opened. Yeah, no, it's and we just we've gotten out of the habit of doing that. Uh, you know, we just we think somehow it's easier to be doing everything mediated by text. So I really I really think, you know, that's get making sure that you create that that relationship, I think, is, is just critical for success. And we had uh, Dr. Nick Morgan, a famed communications consultant on the show earlier. And he said one great phrase to use often in like a phone call or sort of less rich, you know, exchange is how do you feel about what I've just said? You know, just yeah. to get it real explicit, like oh, this yeah. may not have been conveyed, so let's uh, figure it out. Yeah. That seemed pretty brilliant to me. Oh, yeah. And, and, and if I could add to that, one of the places where it's really brilliant in, in, in the modern environment is when you're dealing with people who have a different cultural background than you do. So we, we live in a world in which uh, we may not just be working with people in another state, but they might be halfway around the world. And there, there are big cultural differences in what people will generally say to each other and what kinds of things they give voice to. 
And sometimes you just need to be really explicit with people, including I need to know exactly what you think of this. Uh, because, you know, and, and, to, and to summarize your interpretation of a conversation just to make sure that you actually really are on the same page where if you were talking to somebody you'd known for years or grew up in exactly the same culture, you might share more of the, the, the biases and the way that you think about things that would allow you to communicate effectively. Oh, that is so good. Even just little words, phrases, idioms. I was yeah. working with someone in the Philippines and she said, oh, hey, can we meet up at this time? It's like, oh, oh yeah, sure thing. And she emailed back, thanks for giving me the time of day. It's like, oh, dang, I know, I know I've been absent. I've got a new baby. You know, I'm really sorry. I mean to be more there and available and guiding and developing and coaching. And, you know, I'm really stewing. It's just like, oh, no, I just meant thank you for that time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, OK. Oh, oh, yeah. I do not think this means what you think it yeah, means. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's fantastic. OK. So handy communication tips. And how about, you know, for just um, productivity, you know, getting the job done, motivation, distraction, avoidance. What are your cognitive science insights there? Well, so one of the things that I think is really important is to recognize that the best way to motivate yourself is to create a gap between where you are right now and where you'd like to be in the future that that gap is what creates energy. And I think it's really important for people to, to recognize that there are days when they feel somewhat unmotivated. Uh, and, and part of that, un, that lack of motivation is that they're just not dissatisfied enough with the way things are right now. And that you can actually, by focusing on how the world could be better, you can actually create that kind of energy and get yourself to stick with something. But another piece to this that's really important is you got to learn about what, what the Yerkes-Dodson curve. And I love the fact that these two guys, Yerkes and Dodson, wrote a paper in 1905 that is still relevant today. And the idea behind the Yerkes-Dodson curve is that the more energy you give to a particular goal, the better your performance up to a point. And, and you hit a sweet spot where you have the right level of energy or what psychologists call arousal. And that, huh. and that when you're in that sweet spot, you work really effectively. But if you get hyper aroused, so you, you get more and more arousal, say that the deadline is creeping ever closer, then, then you may find yourself slipping over the edge of this Yerkes-Dodson curve where now additional energy actually lowers your performance because you're just, you, you have so much energy, you can't think straight, you're pacing, you can't, you're panicking. And, and so what everyone needs to learn is where's my sweet spot? Because, you know, that's what helps us to figure out, will I get stuff done ahead of time? Do I need to have a small thermonuclear device detonated beneath my chair before I can get anything done? And, and figure out where that sweet spot is and learn to live there with your projects so that you find the right level of engagement and arousal to allow you to work consistently without getting so over aroused that you that you find yourself unable to make progress on important things. And you know, that's interesting as you talk about the curve and I'm imagining, okay, you know, X and Y axes here and uh, we got more and more energy is good. And then I guess when you have too much energy, it's bad in the sense of you're panicking. And I don't know, I guess we had Tony Schwartz on the show earlier. We talked about energy stuff mm -hmm. and um, it almost sounds like more energy there is equating to anxiety and panic, but I guess he would just call that high energy, but a negative type of energy. Is, can you have too much what he might call high positive energy in terms of, I'm really, really, really excited about this. Can you be too much of that? Yep, you absolutely can. Because even with too much positive energy, you end up pacing, right? I mean, that energy creates actual energy for you that needs to dissipate. And if, if, you're, if you're sitting there trying to work at your desk and you have so much po bubbling positive energy that you need to pace around, you're not being particularly productive in that moment. Mm -hmm. And so you find sometimes people so excited about something that they need to get up, walk around, get it, get it out of themselves so that they can calm down and actually get work done, even when that energy is really positive. Mm -hmm. I know, you know, over the course of my career, I've had times where I felt like I had just figured something out. And in that moment when I figured it out, I couldn't write it. Yeah. I, you know, I had to like quickly say it 
into a into a recorder or something and then walk around for a while like calm down and then and then I was in a place where I could actually write about it so yeah it's 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 overall energy level even if it's positive so panic obviously is it can be negative energy but but just being hyper aroused in general you know creates terrible performance and you you even see this in athletes right when they're when they're so jazzed up about something that that they actually they actually can't coordinate their motions mhm and so then with the Yerkes-Dotson curve, then, is that kind of like different activities or tasks will have different curves where some things are better suited to lower energy states and others higher energy states? You know, it seems to be that everyone's got a sweet spot and that sweet spot seems to be pretty similar across tasks, but different people will differ in their resting levels of arousal. So some people are naturally very high arousal people. And so they are the ones who, who start a project six weeks before it's, it's due. And then there are the people who are very low arousal who really need to have a cattle prod taken to them before they, they start getting anything done. And what's really tough is when you have a high arousal person working with a low arousal person because mm-hmm. that high arousal person gets a whole bunch of stuff done ahead of time and then they hand it off to the other person who does nothing with it till the last moment, sends that back to the other person 10 minutes before it needs to be submitted. And that person is a pool of jello on the floor at that point because they have, they're just so over aroused by the deadline. So you have to find ways for people to work effectively together when, when, uh, when they have different resting levels of arousal. And do you have any pro tips in terms of you would like to amp up or amp down your arousal in a given moment for a task at hand? How might you do that? So to amp it up, one of the things that's useful is to create things like false deadlines for yourself, you know, and, 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 and to do things that really say, I've, I, there's a reason why this has to get done right now, uh, or, or really amp up your sense of how important this is to get right. Um, when, when you're trying, though, to, to calm yourself down, it really is, you know, doing the kinds of things that help you to dissipate energy, which could be, you know, going out for a walk. Or it could be deep breathing exercises, right? Because it, it, those are those are the kinds of things that will actually calm you down. Uh, and and really, what you're doing is trying to create some sense of distance between yourself and uh, and 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 the goal that you're engaged with, so that it it feels mentally further away. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, I want to talk about that next. Is is that point you made about creating a gap between where you are and where you want to be? How is that done in practice? I imagine it boils down to, you know, hey, you set a goal and, and maybe some of this visualization stuff, it really is worthwhile. How do you think about creating that gap and that energy? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of really nice work in psychology, some of it done by, by uh, Gabrielle Ettingen, um, that talks about essentially the role of creating fantasies. And, and you know, not, not in the kind of parlance that we often think about, oh, I'm fantasizing about this, but, but really in the sense of, of creating that vision of the future of here's, here's what I could accomplish. Or frankly, sometimes here's what will go wrong if nobody does anything. And to really elaborate on that mentally, to think about how much better or worse the world could be. And, and to use, and then to con- and then to explicitly contrast that with the present. So you develop this vision of the future and then you compare it to where you are right now. And it is that act of creating that contrast that actually generates that sense of the gap and that energy that comes along with it. Hmm. Okay, cool. Could you maybe walk us through an example there? Yeah. So, for example, think about, um, you know, suppose you, you've, you've kind of stagnated in your job, but you can't really motivate yourself to go look for another one. Okay. Right. Now, so what could you do? Well, one of the things you could do is to begin to think about, well, let me imagine a little bit more about what my ideal job would be. What, what are some of the tasks that I would be doing in my, in my day-to-day life that I'm not currently able to do? And to really envision that clearly and then contrast that with the job I have right now and to really begin to compare that and say, whoa, here are all the ways in which my current job is not ideal. And what that does is it generates dissatisfaction and that dissatisfaction is motivating. So, so you know, it, it turns out that when you're utterly satisfied in life, what you tend to do is fall asleep. Mm-hmm. And so you have to generate a certain amount of dissatisfaction in order to be motivated to do something different. 
and can you overdo it in terms of like you're suddenly zapped of gratitude and bitter and, and anxious about how crappy everything is right now? Well, you can overdo it, but mostly the way that you overdo it is by creating gaps that are not bridgeable. Okay. So I'm a big believer in what I call the bridgeable gap, which means not only do you need a sense of the gap between present and future, you need to believe that there is a plan, a set of actions that you're capable of performing that will get you from here to there. And as long as you feel like you're on a path that will help you to narrow the gap, then focusing on that gap is not a bad thing because you have agency. You, you believe that you are the author of your future. But when you believe that there's no path from the present to the future, well, then creating that gap creates that sense of bitterness and resentment because now you feel like, well, I'm stuck here. Mm -hmm. I have no control over the circumstance. Oh, that's great. Art, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Uh, you know what? Let's take it where you want to go. Although I will say one thing, which is one of my favorite things that I got to do in the book is I, because I play the saxophone, I, I added a, a bunch of sections in the book that I call the jazz brain, which is basically focused on that ability you have to improvise. And I think it's really important for people to understand that in order to improvise effectively, you need to know a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, I think a lot of times people feel like, no, no, there's a curse of knowledge. If I know too much, I'm going to be constrained. But, you know, the people I know in any field, whether it's music or anything else, the people who are best able to adapt to a circumstance on the fly are actually the ones who know a ton of stuff, but are willing to apply lots of different knowledge to a situation. Mm -hmm. Lovely. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you'd find inspiring? I grew up in Edison, New Jersey. And that's really, that's the place where he strung up light bulbs. His lab was actually not in, in, in Edison or what became Edison. Um, but Edison, Edison once said that, that uh, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. And while we could probably quibble about the percentages a little bit, I, I think there's something important about this idea that, that a lot of our success is about the work we do. Um, yeah, some people are more talented at some, something than some, somebody else is, but, but most of the difference in performance between people comes down to doing the right kind of work. And the reason that I've spent so much time in my life uh, over the last 15 years really trying to bring more cognitive science to other people is because I believe that the more you understand about minds, the, the, the more you can put in the right kind of work that can help you to be successful at the things you want to do. Mm -hmm. Lovely. And how about a favorite study or piece of research? One of my favorite pieces of research that I talk about a lot comes from a buddy of mine named Frank Kyle at Yale. Uh, he and one of his students, Leonid Rosenblatt, did this set of studies on what's called the illusion of explanatory depth, which is this idea that you believe you understand the world better than you actually understand the world. And so they did this by having people describe uh, various household devices that they thought they completely understood and only to have people discover that there were significant gaps in their understanding about the way the world works. And it, it turns out that this kind of knowledge about the way the world works, what, what psychologists call causal knowledge, is the stuff that allows you to do new things in new ways. And so when, when you lack that knowledge, then all you can do is execute procedures in your work. You can't really try a new thing. And if you're unaware of what you don't know, then it means you can't work to improve the quality of your knowledge. So I, I really find that study to be, have a profound impact on the way people should treat their knowledge. Mm -hmm. And how about a favorite book? Gosh, I love books. And so I just, I, you know, there's so many, but, but, uh, you know, lately I've been reading quite a bit about small towns of different kinds. I'm just fascinated by, I grew up, I'm an urban kid born and raised and I'm living in Austin, Texas right now. It's a beautiful city. But, but lately I've been reading, reading books like, like Our Towns and Hillbilly Elegy and things like that, just trying to wrap my head around what it's like to grow up in a place very different than, than the one that I, I grew up in. And I, I think that's important, right? I think we, you know, so much of the way we understand the world is by filtering it through our own experience, that it's really important to, to find 
people who've characterized a world that's different from the one that you grew up in, whether it's different in, in, you know, in, in, within, you know, within the country you grew up or, or outside of it as a way of helping you to recognize that not everything that you do is a human universal. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite tool? Something that helps you be awesome at your job. Gosh, I, I love word processors. It's so, and, and this is, it's a funny thing, right? I mean, I think we don't appreciate some of the simple tools that are in front of us, but you know, if my seventh grade teacher knew that I, that I wrote for a living, I think she'd be in hysterics because of how much I hated writing as a kid. But, but just having that ability to put stuff down and then edit it easily is, is such an important thing. You know, I think, I think very few people value the editing process enough. And having having just a a, a tool, a, a, you know, a, you know, whatever your favorite word processor is, to have that in front of you to be able to edit is such an amazing thing. Because you know, most of us look at good writing and we think, "Wow, I could never write like that." And what we really mean is, I could never write like that the first time that something comes out. And what we don't realize is, nobody writes well when when something just pops out of them. You know, what you're seeing is the result of getting something out, crafting it, polishing it, rearranging it, deleting, starting over, and, and then you only get to see the final product. So, yeah, to me, it's just, just what we're able to do with, with a simple word processor. is just, to me, absolutely uh, amazing. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite habit? Uh, favorite habit in the workplace, you know, would have to be that when I come into work, uh, I triage my email. I answer the three emails that absolutely have to be answered. And then I shut my email off for, for a half hour and do something else that matters. <laughs> because, cause, cause, you know, I, I do believe that people take a tremendous amount of pride in their work, but I don't think anyone looks back over the last year and says the most important thing I did was to send these 18,471 emails. Mm, thank you. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with readers and students? Obviously, I think a lot of things, you know, are, are a matter of personal taste. But I think, you know, this recognition that we have a go system that drives us to act and then a, a fallible stop system that prevents us from doing things effectively, uh, that, you know, that, that because, you know, we, we are not good at stopping something that that go system has, has engaged and that when you want to be productive, your job in life is to reprogram that go system towards habits whose accumulated impact uh, will create the contribution you want. To me, understanding that and living your life knowing that, that the best way to act, to to be effective is to reprogram that go system is, is something that, that I think when people internalize that changes the way that they go about their work. Mm-hmm. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? So uh, you can find me pretty easily on social media. I, I love to have people uh, finding the stuff that I write. I, I, I write, I try to give away as much as I can. So I write for Psychology Today, for Fast Company, for Harvard Business Review. Certainly would love for people to pick up my books, but you can find out all of the stuff that I'm writing on uh, on Twitter, LinkedIn. Uh, I have an author page on on Facebook. I have a website, smartthinkingbook.com, that that has information about all of my books, and I also post a few blog entries and things up there. So all of those are places where pe- people can find me. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. You know, I think that the most important thing that you can do is to recognize that it is always about what you're going to learn next, that no one is completely ready for the job that they have. And that, uh, and as I, as I said to, to my oldest son, when he was first going out on the job market, I said, if you're completely prepared for the job you apply for, you aimed too low. And so we should think about our, our work lives as a constant opportunity for growth and challenge. And that, that when you do that, when you look for the next thing that you can learn, then it, it continues to open up new worlds and new possibilities. Because as I say at the very end of the book, you know, bumper sticker wisdom tells us that, that no one on their deathbed says that they wish that they'd spent another day at the office. But 
but honestly, the people I know who look back on, on their careers with fondness are the ones who feel like they really accomplished something over the course of their years, and they are justifiably proud of the work that they did. Hmm. Thank you for that. That's nice. Nice thought. Nice final words. Art, this has been a lot of fun. I wish you and the book bring your brain to work. Lots of luck and keep on doing the good stuff. Well, thanks, Pete. It's a pleasure talking with you today. I really love what Art had to say about you can't bring too much energy, but you can be in trouble if your high level of energy impedes your stop system and you do something stupid. This reminds me of a time I was in high school. I was with my buddy Ronnie and I very stupidly was riding on the hood of his car, not very fast, maybe 10 15 miles per hour. It was so exhilarating and fun. We were laughing and I had this sense that it would be a fine idea to hop off of this car (laughs) and keep the running going. Ronnie, to his credit, said he saw that I was kind of maneuvering a little bit, maybe read my mind and called out, no, Pete, that's a bad, but it was too late. Trying to say bad idea. I kind of uh, hopped off and started running and whoa, learned about inertia firsthand, almost had my balance, then lost it and hit the ground at a pretty high velocity. And I still have a little bit of a scar on my forearm to show for that experience. So there you go. I was highly energized. My stop functioning wasn't working. Being a teenager probably didn't help. And that was a lesson that art now crystallized for me well over a decade later. So thank you for that art. I hope you dug that lesson and didn't have to hurt yourself to let it sink in and let it absorb fully. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep451. We got Nick Hayes in the house next time. He's a Navy SEAL and they're fun to talk to. And he is talking about gratitude and perspective and high performance and all that good stuff. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.